Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the M&T Bank Center for Women in Business podcast. Today, our guest is Sujata Gadar Wilcox, Associate Professor of Legal Studies at Quinnipiac University. She has been recently appointed to the State Commission on Human Rights and Opportunities by Governor Ned Lamont. The commission works to eliminate discrimination through civil and human rights law enforcement and to establish equal opportunity and justice for all persons within the state through advocacy and education. In this episode for the M&T Bank Center for Women in Business podcast, Sujata Gadar Wilcox speaks on the nuances of women's equality in honor of Women's Equality Day on August 26th. Join us in welcoming Professor Gadar Wilcox to our podcast. Perfect. Yeah, it wasn't showing me that. Um... Okay, good. And sorry, I have my my daughter coming in getting something but you're you're only using the videos uh, the audio so that's okay right right no worries about the whole zoom it's just a way to connect um so yeah I do the um the intro pre-recorded um but you said that you did some edits um I haven't had a chance to look at it I've been a little busy no I didn't do edits I was I was kind of I didn't realize it was a shared document so I started typing in it I just wanted to let you know but then I took what I typed out of it and just left it the way you had it because I realized later it was shared you know so no no I have no edits that's that is great okay fantastic all right well I will just jump right in with the questions um and I think I'm going to start with um just kind of a broad question about your career and your day-to-day work, um, what your focus is in your studies, um, and just if you could give our listeners a better understanding of, of your work. Great. Um, yeah, so, um, oh, sorry, Sarah, so let me just ask, do you want me to kind of go in the order of, are, are you going to go in the order of the questions you'd already asked me or just okay. make it informal? Yeah, I'm, so the thing is, I sometimes jump, if I like think of a question, when you've, you know, said something, I'll ask it. Um, It can be a little like, daunting to answer things on the seat of your pants. So I will like, really try to stick to these questions. Um, But I think for the first one, I want to have just like, um, instead of starting with what led you to pursue a career, I'm just going to ask you to like, describe your job for our listeners who maybe don't know. Um, and then I'll go into the second one and I'll try to stick to the questions that I've already written out from then on, if that sounds okay. That's fine. And it's fine for you to be flexible. I'm, I'm flexible. So it's not, oh. <laughs> no worries. Yeah. Um, okay. Sorry. So say that again. So you wanted, good. Um, actually, I'm going to do over the whole start of it. Sure. Sure. <laughs> okay. So thank you for joining us today. We're really excited to have you, Professor, on our podcast. Um, And I guess I'll just start with a very broad question about your career and um, your day-to-day work. If you could just give our listeners a better understanding of what it is that you focus on in your studies. Yeah, well, thank you so much, Sarah, for having me. This is exciting, and I look forward to our conversation. Uh, So I am an associate professor of legal studies at Quinnipiac University um, and chair of the Department of Justice and Law. Um, And my my research area is focused, my research is focused in comparative constitutional law, constitutional law, and human rights law. So, um, you know, sort of day-to-day activities are working, teaching the classes in, in these areas, working with students um, who are interested in law, um, in, in sort of different areas of law, 
but then, uh, you know, pursuing research as well in comparative constitutionalism in, in human rights law. And that involves, you know, co-curricular activities. So I've created on campus, um, for example, a global engagement fellows program where students can, you know, think about human rights issues outside of the classroom and then work collaboratively with a local community organization, you know, to actually advocate on the ground for that. Because that's what's really important to me as a legal scholar, that we take abstract legal principles and think about them in the way they actually uh, exist in the lived reality uh, of people's everyday lives. And then what can we do in that context as well? So I enjoy not only teaching in the classroom, but those co-curriculars uh, activities as well. And, and then as chair, you know, it's it's been really nice to, to pull together these programs in our department. We have criminal justice, legal studies, and now a new program in justice and community engagement. Um, and, and so, you know, administering that is sort of part of my day-to-day -day as well, which has been fantastic. I've been doing that for a year. That's wonderful. And I especially love, you know, you mentioning that when things are kind of abstracted in your studies, um, they can seem kind of untouchable in the real world. But when you actually make an impact and connect what you're studying in the classroom to organizations in real life and actual human beings, um, the work becomes that much more important. And um, I really appreciate you mentioning that. Um, and that kind of leads me to my next question. Um, what led you to pursue a career in legal studies? And I'm assuming that um, a lot of it has to do with the human rights aspect. I'm interested to hear what you have to say. Yeah, so I was always interested in public interest law. That's what I, after, after I finished, you know, sort of my undergraduate um, study, I, I knew that public interest law was what I wanted to pursue. I wanted to use law in a way that would be helpful to those who, who need it the most. Um, and so I, but being the child of immigrants, you know, uh, you have to sort of make choices for, and 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 there are some constraints. So I, I did, I wound up going to, I chose to go to the University of Pennsylvania. Um, <laughs> so I, I chose to go to the University of Pennsylvania, which is a uh, an Ivy League school, um, but that was at some cost. I had to take out full loans to do that, but I knew that that would open opportunities um, for me, opportunities that I didn't have. And oftentimes, you know, when you're the child of immigrants, you have to kind of make these opportunities for yourself. And um, these universities uh, provide those networks. And so I knew what I wanted to do really was not only to help people in, in law, but to, to create pathways for the next generation of students, students who may not otherwise have these opportunities to be able to do that. So being in this position now, um, you know, teaching at Quinnipiac, I'm also the director of the uh, Oxford Consortium for Human Rights. Um, I, what, what that allows me to do is to provide opportunities for students to be engaged in these conversations of human rights, of constitutional law, and sometimes students who wouldn't otherwise have these opportunities. So that was always my sort of interest is I wanted to pursue this career in public interest law, um, but had to take out full loans to do so. So initially, I started working at a law firm. Um, mm -hmm because I had to pay back the loan. So I started working yeah. at a corporate law firm. Um, and that was good. And I was a litigation associate and I did a lot of research and writing, which was good. 
Um, but my heart wasn't in it. You know, I always wanted to do public interest work. And so I left that um, after several years to, to be the director of a nonprofit. And that was a bit of a risk because the salary difference was, was huge, I should say. Um, and, you know, that was great because that was a legal education program. And I was working with students who were in elementary school, in middle school and high school, talking about rights and responsibilities under the law. Um, and I think that's, in fact, what led me to Quinnipiac because, uh, you know, that work was doing teaching work in a nonprofit, but during a recession, that program got scaled back. So I started looking for other positions. My husband is an academic and he said, look for academic positions. And this position happened to open up and it's really been the best thing that I've ever done is to work with students um, and to be able to think more broadly about these you know, legal issues in an interdisciplinary and comparative way. I absolutely love it. Yeah, and that's, that's good advice too for young professionals where, you know, you kind of find yourself job hopping a little bit, maybe not coming across your dream job right away, but not letting that discourage you and, and keeping your, your dreams and your goals, you know, within vision and um, viewing it as a career journey and not, you know, a career like forever. So Absolutely. I, I appreciate you saying that. Um, and, um, and let, that me just, just, let me just say to that, Sarah, I, I think it's important for young people also not to worry about that, you know, because I think if you ask most people, you know, your most people aren't in their initial career. So, right. um, I mean, I'm not technically practicing law, I'm teaching law, which I love, and I can practice law because I can, you know, I can take on pro bono cases or take on other cases, but uh, you know, sometimes your career path isn't exactly where, where you sort of, one, what you envisioned, or or two, you know, where you think you initially land. So um, that's true for most people. So I think, you know, it's good for people to know that there, there are sort of multiple avenues that, you know, um, you probably will take uh, throughout your career. Yeah. Um, and I'd love to know, just based on that, what is the most rewarding aspect of your job currently or um, previously in other roles? Well, things like this, you know, speaking with students, um, I love it. I love working with students, you know, um, and, and I love being able to think more broadly about law. So the, the problem with the practice of law is, you know, it becomes very mundane in the day-to-day. -day. Uh, you're very focused on a particular legal issue or a particular client, and that's important because that client has particular needs, and you have to, you have to think very sort of carefully and critically about those issues, but it doesn't give you time to sit back and think more broadly, you know, about what uh, how do how can I, how can I compare, for example, the Indian Constitution to the U.S. Constitution to the Brazilian Constitution, which is what I'm doing now, with opportunities uh, like to teach in Brazil, which is which is where I am right now, um, and and so that I absolutely love, and I love working with students because you know students provide a different insight um, on all of these subjects because they haven't studied them in the same way. Um, and so, you know, that provides it for me, new perspectives in the classroom. I think the classroom for me always becomes a learning environment. Um, and, and I, you know, I hope that we all learn together and I always learn something from every class as well. So, you know, I just, that I enjoy most is working with students teaching and not only in the classroom, but, you know, as I said before, these co-curricular opportunities, uh, I think are really important, not only for the students, but for me, because I get to know students in, in a more informal way. So whether it's for the global engagement program, where we meet informally and talk about human rights and then engage in the community, or for the mock trial team, you know, that I created when I first started, where students are able to actually apply what they're saying um, in an actual, you know, in a, in a 
practical context where they where you have a mock argument that you're making, not only at Quinnipiac, but you're going to other universities and meeting students from the region. You know, that's exciting, not only for the students, but for me to participate in that. Yeah, that is wonderful. Um, I've always really enjoyed discussion-based classes and um, extracurriculars that allow me to have um, these sort of complex discussions with my peers, because I feel like, and I appreciate you saying that, you know, you feel like you also learn in those environments because there's always something to gain from other perspectives. Um, even if you've been, you know, in, in the field for a while, just being able to discuss with, with different minds is, is fantastic. Um, so that definitely sounds like a very rewarding aspect of your career right now. Um, and since this episode is set to um, air on Women's Equality Day, August 26th, um, I would love to know what are some key milestones in the fight for women's rights and gender equality um, that you've been aware of uh, from a legal perspective? Yeah, so I have um, always been an admirer of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the work that she really has done um, in the U.S. Supreme Court uh, or in, for a, you know, uh, American jur legal jurisprudence to establish heightened scrutiny for uh, the protection of women's rights. So she, in fact, was one of the key figures that helped change the standard of review for any um, gender-based uh, discriminatory law uh, to, to, be, to, to have a more heightened scrutiny, what we call intermediate scrutiny. And I think that work has really been central to you know, uh, overcoming some of the uh, you know, applied laws that were, in fact, discriminating by gender based on you know, very basic uh, gender stereotypes and this law, this standard being applied to that kind of discriminatory treatment required the state to provide more before they are, you know, able to pass a law that discriminates against women. So I think that did a lot. That's a, that's a huge milestone. Um, there are so I think there are also social milestones. So I think the the Me Too movement, for example, was really important because when we talk about gender based discrimination, um, you know, it's not just we can't just talk about legal remedies because gender-based discrimination has so many social dimensions. There are economic dimensions as well, social dimensions, policy dimensions, and legal dimensions. But I think the social dimensions are key because you don't always have a legal remedy to social discrimination. And I think what the Me Too movement really did is to let people know how pervasive gender-based discrimination, gender-based violence really is, that it's not just a one-off. It's not one person you know, and, and some, of course, it is sometimes people that are that are acting in a kind of deviant way. But the the problem is so widespread that it's clearly systemic. So some of it is based on social norms. So I think the Me Too movement has sort of. Uh, helped maybe the world to see, right, what maybe has always been visible to women in particular, that there is this disparate treatment for women and men in particular when we talk about gender-based violence. And now, uh, given how many people sort of commented on their experiences, they can you can see that this is pervasive and something has to be done. And then start talking about different legal remedies. So I think globally, you know, the, the CEDAW, which is our Convention on the Elimination of Discrimination, um, uh, all forms of discrimination against women, that 
has already kind of set the tone of thinking about social and legal remedies as sort of a combined project, not separating out the law from, from the social. So I think, you know, that that's important as well. And I would say a setback, I mean, recently, of course, is the Dobbs decision, um, because it sort of changed the standard when it comes to privacy in the body for women. And because that's largely what that case is about. It's about whether or not there's a right to privacy in the body for women. Um, and that, though, I would say, you know, one upside of, of that setback is what we see now is an in incredible mobilization of women who I think were not engaged at all politically or socially um, in, in, in these conversations about gender discrimination that are now getting involved. So that, in fact, is the key to a robust democracy. So, you know, I would say that, in fact, has set in motion some momentum that's going to be helpful. Thank you for that wonderful answer. There are so many good points in that. Um, and I'd love to just move on to our next question because it does kind of connect um, uh, based on the Women's Equality Day, um, which we are recording on right now. Or I'm going to cut this out. <laughs> um, so my next question is, what would your advice be to young women considering a career in legal studies or public interest law specifically who want to make a positive impact on their community? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, and, and I think um, one is to just be intentional about your commitment to the community, uh, and especially for, for, for people who are in situations like mine, where, as I mentioned, you know, as a child of immigrants, I had to make a decision when I went to law school. I did get a, I did get full ride. I did get a free, a full scholarship to, to law school. And I decided to go to an Ivy League school very intentionally because I wanted to, I wanted to open doors that I knew I didn't have access to. I didn't have those networks. I had to create those, that access for myself. But in doing so, I had to take on that constraint of, um, you know, first paying back those loans and then going to a law firm to be able to do that. And, and that law firm was not focused on public interest work. Um, um, but I had to be very intentional there too, then to say, yes, I'm going, I'm going to do the best job that I can, you know, as a, as a litigation associate, but I don't want to forget about my commitment to the community. So in fact, I had, I had as an associate, the highest number of pro bono hours after the pro bono partner, because I was committed to that work, but that takes a lot of effort. And, and sometimes if you find yourself in that situation where you're like, I really want to do this work, but either I can't afford to, or, you know, for whatever reason, I'm obligated to take on, right, or take this other you know, pathway for right now, you know, try to be intentional about doing something to keep your foot in the community, you know, and whether that's working for a civic organization, that's always important, you know, working um, again for uh, like, I, I did work for a homeless advocacy clinic. So whatever it is you can do um, in your field, whether it's medicine, law, engineering, you know, to contribute in a way that supports public interest, I would say, just think about those intentional steps because that's gonna be important. And, and not always easy, you know, but think about how you can do that, because that also opens doors for you later, I would say that's what allowed me later then to 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 leave the law firm and to be the director of a nonprofit, and then to do the work that I'm doing now, you know, so if I didn't take those risks, I wouldn't have had these opportunities. So sometimes risks pay off later on. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm loving hearing about your journey, because this is very inspirational just based on you know the leaps of faith that you took and the, the plan that you strategically laid out for yourself um I'm, I'm loving hearing about this and i'm sure our listeners are going to take a lot from this and i would love to know um in your expertise 
what are some of the most significant legal challenges women are facing in their pursuit of equality in the present day? Um, and I'm sure that you have personal experience with this. I'm sure many of our listeners do. Um, I know I have, but I'd love to hear your perspective on this. Yes, no, thank you for this. These are all really excellent questions. Uh, I would say legally, um, uh, one one thing that, you know, uh, I think obvious, I think now has become obvious with the amount of discussion around it, but it's this question of the right to privacy uh, and the right to privacy in the body after the Dobbs, uh, after the Dobbs decision, um, you know, because the decision I know is always framed about the right to abortion. Um, but the thing about the Dobbs case is we were talking about pregnancy at two weeks, which it isn't in what, what most people think the challenge to abortion is sort of a competing right to life and then a competing right to privacy. But when you're talking about conception at two weeks, most you know sort of uh, uh, experts in, 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 in fields of medicine and science have said that's pre-viability. So in other words, the only issue we're really talking about in Dobbs now is the right to privacy in the body. Um, and given that the court has now said there is not a constitutional right to privacy in the body, that brings up a series of additional questions that um, involve the right to privacy that have now, uh, you know, th that are that have that have now um, been called into question themselves. And so I think that is probably the most serious issue that's facing women. Um, but it's just legally you know it's 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 an issue i think it's an issue of democracy right what does the right to privacy mean um and it, and if it's a state by state right that's not how rights work you know if it's a fundamental right it can't be a state by state issue right so what the court said is not a fundamental right um and then that i think that's the more important but what does it mean that the right to privacy is not a fundamental right and how does that implicate so many other things um it, it, because it it, it could in, in implicate marriage it could implicate the the way you raise your child it could implicate other medical decisions you have about your body right so there are so many things that that right implicates but most immediately uh, in the Dobbs decision, it impacts women. Um, and we're seeing the effects of that now. So that I would say, of course, is in contemporary sense, the most significant and urgent legal issue. I would also say there's sort of continuing issues, uh, you know, of kind of implicit bias uh, for women. Pay equity has always been an issue and it continues to be an issue despite the strides that we make, which is very difficult, you know. Um, and I think it's also difficult for, for women to, to know the statistics are all there, that you tend to have to do more work than male counterparts um, for the same job. And I feel that in many ways as a faculty member. And as you sort of go up, I think, in leadership roles, I would say you feel it even more. You know, you feel, you feel, and, and it becomes a question then of equity, right? Because I've always worked hard, so I'm used to working hard, but then when you realize someone else isn't really working that hard and maybe getting as much or more than you are, you know, you start to feel the, the weight of the inequity and realize you need to do something about it. And so that, those I would say are challenges that we need to collectively all take on. Yeah. Um, Going off of that, I would love to know um, how legal scholars, students, and just our listeners in general can contribute to the ongoing fight for women's equality and social justice, as well as become better advocates for women's equality. Um, I would love to know how you feel we can make a, a change, even when these issues feel, like you've said, systemic and kind of ingrained in our society and almost like um, there's no way to get around it. What would your recommendations be? 
Yeah, that's a great question. And I always think it's, you know, collective voice is so important um, and civic organizations. I know the first thing people say, and I've actually also gotten involved in politics. So I know people say, get involved in politics, run for office. I don't think running for office is enough, you know, because what keeps governments in check are really civic organizations. Uh, and you have a wide range of civic organizations. So it's not like a civic organization is only for one party and not the other, one perspective, not the other. It's really for, for issues that you think the government should be paying attention to and they're not for whatever reason. Um, it's important, I think, for people to get involved, particularly at the grassroots level in those kinds of organizations. I'm involved, for example, on the, I'm on the board of the, uh, the state board of the League of Women Voters of Connecticut, because I do, I, it's, a, it's a nonpartisan uh, group that is is very much committed to democracy and to maintaining democracy by making sure ballots are accessible, by making sure voters have information about campaigns and elections, by making sure debates are freely held and they'll moderate debates, you know. So I think as an organization, you know, for me, it's important. I think we do a lot as the League of Women Voters um, to keep democracy running. I'm also part of local organizations like the, the Trumbull Rotary Club, you know, which I think it's important for people to get involved in organizations where you might meet people that have different perspectives. You know, not everybody in the Rotary Club, it comes from the same political persuasion, the same background. People don't always agree on everything, but that's okay because you have to be in a space where you're able to have conversations and kind of negotiate around, um, you know, uh, differences. And, and I think we've, we're starting to lose that as a society and particularly with social media, you know, where everybody is focused on social media, and you have these algorithms that are just confirming everything you're seeing. So you have all this confirmation bias, and it's not really helping you engage. So I, I think the way to do this is to be involved in organizations. Um, if you're advocating, then be involved in an advocacy organization for an issue you care about, you know, otherwise also just be involved in the community and sometimes with people you don't agree with, you know, so that you can, so you know you're not siloed, right? So you you know that there is nuance, in fact, in what somebody is saying who may disagree with you. Um, and then how do you have a conversation about that? Those, I think, are the most important things for people to be doing generally, plus is just civic-minded individuals. And for our students in particular at Quinnipiac, you know, I would say, you know, this globe for the global engagement program, if you're interested in things like human rights, um, you know, and social justice, come and join the global engagement program because we have opportunities to work with the community. And that's that's um, at the Albert Schweitzer Institute now is, is uh, administering the global engagement program. And every year we have a community action summit, which is coming up in October. So for any Quinnipiac students that are interested in that, you know, feel free to email me or um, Professor Sean Duffy, who's the executive director of the Albert Schweitzer Institute, because we'll have opportunities for students to, to hear about what others are doing to work locally in the community, and then opportunities for them to also engage in the community. So there, there, are, there are other opportunities like this on campus as well, and I would encourage students to sort of seek those opportunities. But for those who are interested, particularly in this and in, in human rights and global ethics, you know, come join that, come join us. <laughs> you know, we're, we're happy to have you. Wonderful. Um, I did kind of combine our last two questions, um, but just to sum everything up, uh, thank you for being here with me and for having this wonderful discussion. I've really enjoyed all the points you brought up. And I think this has just been a wonderful episode for Women's Equality Day. Um, and just kind of wrap up our discussion, I'd love to know, um, like you've been talking about, um, what exactly can Quinnipiac students do to get involved? Will you be at the involvement fair? 
um, and what organizations specifically can they join? Um, would you recommend they join um, to become uh, civic leaders and to um, kind of take a stance um, and be a part of the ongoing fight for women's equality? Yeah, that's that's great. I mean, I would say um, get involved in uh, what you're interested in, you know, because it, I sometimes I think people think it has to be one organization or or one path forward that will get me to social justice. But actually, it's I think it's just being intentional about how you can incorporate your your own interests, but but combine that with thinking about the needs of a community. Um, and so that could be, for example, joining the Global Engagement Program, because we have that available on campus. Um, but even joining a program like the Mock Trial Team, you know, that gives you the opportunity to engage with new students, to learn new perspectives, to, to really think about structured argumentation and debate, not just like what we kind of see in the public where people are like fighting, but nobody's actually having a conversation because there's no listening and responding to uh, objections that are actually being made. You have to learn how to do that. So that's actually effective for, for any, any field and any skill to do that. Or, you know, there are so many local organizations like IRIS, the Integrated Refugee um, and Immigrant Services that need help. Habit, um, there's um, the, the Keefe Center, which needs, you know, always looking for volunteers and interns. So there, I think there are many ways that students can can get involved. And I would say based on your interest. So if you're you're sort of interested in in in, in science and medicine, you know, look for opportunities in the community there. Um, Vince Contrucci's office is a, is always a good place to go. Um, the Office of Community Engagement, Community Involvement, um, and you know, to send send him an email to say, look, I really want to get involved in the community. How can I do that? Because there are all these opportunities on campus that sometimes even as faculty members, we don't know right, what's happening in other places, but we have so many things that I would just tell people to explore a little bit. Um, and if they have an, an interest in human rights and global ethics, you know, please feel free to, to, to come directly to me um, and then just to explore other things on campus that are available. Yeah, well, thank you so much. Those are all great recommendations and I'm sure our listeners will um, be using those resources. Um, it's great to know about who to, who to contact and who exactly to email for those reasons. Um, so I thank you for bringing that up. And I've loved our discussion today. Um, and I think that just about wraps it up. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Sarah. I've had a great time. And thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to stop the recording. So Sarah, I had a question.